Hi, everybody. How are you? All right, listen. If you promise not to tell anybody, in honor of this weekend, I really just felt like this was appropriate, so... This is the only holiday in a year where white guys get to dance. Come on. How about it? Well, happy St. Patrick's Day to you all. I'm so glad that you're here. I, um, Easter is coming. St. Patrick's Day is always great because it means that Easter is just around the corner. And so we have 13 services coming up at the two campuses. And we didn't do that so that uh, you'd have a nice way to plan your schedule. Uh, the reason we did that is so that you would be able to invite someone. Studies tell us that most people would come to church if someone would just invite them. And so we're asking you, find somebody that you know who needs to come to church, invite them to church. You can do that through our website, through an evite we have there, or just the old-fashioned phone or text them or you know, whatever works for you. So we've been in the story now for 25 weeks. Isn't that amazing? Has the story been good? It's been a great experience, even for us teaching it. But for 25 weeks now, we've been in the story. And I think what we can finally say from, from this point, from the people's perspective, is that things are kind of a mess. Would you agree? And things need to be repaired. Things need to be fixed. And just so we get a sense of what a fix is, I just want to walk you through. There are some things called short-term repairs that just are not that good and not that helpful. For example, if if your child's high chair breaks down, this is not considered a long-term fix. I do do love that they put the the duck up there, too. That's good. Uh, If your porch, if your awning starts falling in, I don't care how many pairs of extra crutches you have. Not going to last very long. And if your gas cap falls off your van or your car, this, this is not, although this is the best use of a Justin Bieber CD, if you ask me. Um, <laughs> short-term fixes are not going to cut it. And so when it comes to this point in the story and we see the problems that humanity is having, we know God needs to step in and do something. By the time Jesus shows up on the scene in the story, They believe that there is going to be a man. People in the Jewish culture believe there is going to be a man sent from God who is going to bring a long-term solution to all the problems that they've been having. Because, as we see throughout the story, this is also very true. The problem with the story is a divine problem. The problem is people have become distant from God. People have become separated from God. And so the only way this problem is going to be solved is by God himself. And the people believe there's a a man coming from God who is going to take care of that. And we hear about it in the Old Testament in one of the prophecies. It says this, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Now the word here for son of man literally means human being, but this is a human being that is sent from God. So he's given divine power to take care of what's going on. And everyone expected him to be kind of a Jewish superman who was going to come and overthrow all the enemies that they had. And this person was going to be called the Messiah. 
And that word in Hebrew just means anointed one. It's somebody who's been given this divine mission to come and heal all the things and all the problems that are going on with the world. So basically, Israel was saying, one day someone's going to come who's going to say, my God can beat up your God. This is going to be like God's Chuck Norris, for example, because the reality is Chuck Norris doesn't do push-ups. He pushes the earth down. Did you, you didn't know that? Oh, there's your education for this morning. Anyway, we're still doing that really today too. And even in our lives, we're still doing that. We're still looking for someone who's going to be a fixer. We're looking for a president or a coach or a new teacher, a new way of life, a new offensive lineman, somebody who's going to bring some order and some life to the problems that we see going on. We're still doing that today. And the honest thing about it is the Messiah was going to end all the problems God's people had and heal God's world. And we still need that today. We need someone who's going to come and end the problems and the things we struggle with and heal the world in which we live. Someone to fix creation permanently. God has been working at this the whole time through the story. And you've probably seen it in little bits here and there. Like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they had this promise that God was going to use them to fix the world. Moses was going to be the leader of the nation that would fix the world. David was the king of the people who were going to fix the world. The prophets were calling the people of God to be fixed so that they might fix the world. But in the course of all this happening, what has happened is that people, instead of being the solution, have now, well, now they've become the problem. And so something else needs to be done. So this Messiah would be sent by God to be the one who brings all things back together. In other words, what we'd find is that the divine problem gets a divine solution. It's the only way that this gap gets bridged. But what about Jesus? We always talk about Jesus in churches as the Messiah. You've heard this language attached to him, especially at Christmas. Jesus is the Messiah. Well, does he fit the job description? He was going to come and overthrow all their enemies. He was going to come and make everything right with creation. We have to start asking ourselves the question, does Jesus do this? Is this who he really is? Does he fit the expectations? And I would say no. In their minds, he was a colossal failure as a Messiah. But what does that mean? Does that, does that mean he failed? In other words, what is it about Jesus that made him the divine solution? And I believe the answer to that is that he was the Son of God. I believe very simply that Jesus was the Son of God because we hear it throughout his life. All the scriptures that talk about Jesus from the moment he was born all the way to his death talk about him being the Son of God. At the beginning we hear this and about his birth. It says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Listen, if your kid is not God with us, don't name him that. That's a lot of pressure. It's like naming him like World Peace or Chick Magnet. It's just, you're, put, you're setting him up for failure is what you're doing. If he's not God, don't name him God with us. In Jesus' first temptation in his life, he's led out into the desert and Satan tests him on this. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, then tell these stones to become bread. If, if you are the son of God. The demons, when they saw Jesus, they cried out because they knew exactly who they were dealing with. They say, what do you want with us, son of God? They shouted, have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? Even they knew what was going on. Jesus' disciples, these 12 guys that he was closest to, there's an event in his life where he walks across the top of a stormy lake, which just is mind-blowing anyway, and he walks across the top of this stormy lake out to the boat where they are. He brings Peter out, and Peter walks a little bit, and then he fails, but that's a different story. And then when he gets in the boat with the 12, this is what happens. As soon as they got into the boat, the wind died down, and then those those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son 
of God. But the big one comes on top of a mountain. Jesus takes three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, and they go up on top of a mountain. And while they're there, Jesus is transformed. His clothes become radiant white, and he becomes this divine image. And all of a sudden, Moses, who's been dead for a very long time, and Elijah, who's been dead not as long, but for a very long time as well, show up with him. And then this cloud envelops them, and a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. In other words, God says, I'm God, and I approve this message. When they saw Moses and Elijah, every person of a Jewish descent would have said, this is it. Moses told us this person was coming. Elijah was the one who was going to be the one who started the whole movement. When he's here and he's here, that means big flashing arrow, son of God, Messiah, everything's coming back into order. So what's the big deal? Well, the reality is if Jesus isn't the Son of God, then everyone who was around him was smoking something incredibly strong because they all believed that he was. Every single person that was surrounding Jesus believed he was the Son of God. You may ask me this question, but so what? It's just theology. You seminary guys, you love this stuff, but I kind of like my Jesus regular unleaded, you know? I like my Jesus in the gold diapers, you know, my baby infant Jesus. I like that Jesus. Don't mess with my image of Jesus. Don't throw all these big words and theology into this. Let me leave Jesus the way he is. As a matter of fact, there's sometimes when those big words actually get in the way and they're not worth dealing with, as this kid found out in the video. Check it out. Okay, Dex, I need you to focus in. Can you do that? Can you focus in? Okay, good. Uh, you've come a long way in your theology lessons. Mom and I are real proud of you. So, are you ready to get started? Let's let's jump into these flashcards. Flashcards. No, not splash park. Flashcards. You ready for the flashcards? Yeah. I'm gonna tell you a theological term, and then you tell me what it means. Tell me you what it means. Okay, this is no time for jokes. Let's get serious. Yeah. Okay, first one. Annihilationism. Resolutionism. Yeah. Tell me what that means. I don't know. Dax, we've been over this. Moving on. Let's go to the next one. Amillennialism. Amillennialism. Okay, now you're just mocking me. I don't know what that means. Dax, we've been over this. These are simple Christian theological terms. You're making this way harder than it needs to be. Hey, okay, okay, sit down. Sit on your bottom. No. Oh, you think that's funny? You know what's funny is, you're not going to get accepted into Dallas Theological Seminary next fall. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, see? Not so funny now, is it? You want to be a theologian someday? And you're going to have to pay attention. A zebra. I want to be a zebra. A zebra. Okay, let's refocus. Define dispensationalism. Back it up, homie. Excuse me? These questions are ridiculous. Not if you want to get in the seminary, they're not. Daddy, I don't know what you're talking about. Oh, I think you do. Turn the camera off. Dax, please. I'm incoming my exit. 
no, 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 Dex, 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 I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Let's, let's not bring mom into this. All right, so sometimes the isms get in the way, right? But honestly, so why, so why is this all so important? Here's what I cannot say strongly enough. If Jesus isn't the Son of God, in the sense of being someone who's been given the power to come and address the issues with creation and make them right again, then Jesus is just another dude. Granted, he's a better dude than most of us, but he's just another guy. Just another guy in a series of broken guys. So what's the big deal? And this is how a lot of other religions actually handle Jesus. I mean, if you, if you look into what they believe, uh, Judaism believes that Jesus was a good teacher and one of the prophets, but, but that's it. Buddhism believes that Jesus was a good man, but he was a teacher of wisdom and humility. Islam believes that Jesus was a prophet, but he was one of many prophets who included Muhammad. Hindus like Gandhi believe that Jesus was a good teacher who taught the way to peace and hope in the world. I, when I was younger, I actually read into Buddhism for a little while, and I was like, well, this might make actual some sense. And, and the honest thing was, at the end of the day, I came back to, oh, it's just all on me to fix things. And I've got to tell you, I'm not good at it. I'm, I'm short-term fix man. That's who I am. So at the end of the day, if Jesus is not more than just a good teacher, if Jesus isn't the Son of God, then he's not solving any problems. He's just another dude. But I believe that's different. Because I believe this. I believe that he was God's son, and I believe he was doing the family business. Because the radical thing about Jesus is not necessarily his teaching, and it's not necessarily his grace, and it's not necessarily the forgiveness and the life that he lived. It's that he claimed to only be doing what he saw God, his father, doing. In the scriptures it says, very truly I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees the father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He does. My dad and I actually uh, look quite a bit alike. And when I was younger, it was much easier. Here's a picture of us. This may make some sense. So that's my dad in the middle. That's me. Um, and that's my sister who's very happy probably that she doesn't know she's on this screen right now. Um, but my dad and I when, I, when we were younger, when I was younger, we looked a lot more alike. And, and granted, I got some height on him now. And he's got me beat in the facial hair category and everything like that. But we lived in a small town. And so wherever we went, and I would introduce myself for the first time, they'd say, what's your name? And I'd, when I'd say my last name was Tiger. They'd be like, oh, yeah, you're Kenny's boy, aren't you? And I said, yeah, we, we kind of look alike, don't me. Actually, my nephew, who's two, saw that picture, and he goes, Grandpa? Like, he was a little confused about who was who in the picture, but I resemble physically my dad. The strange thing that we find is that when we look at Jesus as the Son of God, what we notice is that it's crucial to know that because in him, people see who God really is. Most of us are on this search for God, this spiritual quest, but really, who we're really on the quest for is someone who actually looks like God, and that's why Jesus as the Son of God is so important, because he shows us who God is. He doesn't just resemble him physically like I do my dad. He resembles him in the life and the purpose that God would live if he were here in our place. And so many people are drawn to Jesus because they think he's a good teacher, because they think he brings peace, but honestly, they're really drawn to him because they find in him what God really looks like. That thing we've all been hungering for, who is God and what does he look like? We see it in Jesus because Jesus says so himself. He says, for I've come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. For my father's will is that everyone who looks to the son and believes in him shall have eternal life and I will raise them up on the last day. 
This is crucial because if Jesus is just a teacher, again, he doesn't address the problems. He doesn't address the divine problem. Jesus has to be more than just a good teacher because the divine problem needs a divine solution, and the divine solution is a divine son. Only a divine son of God is going to be able to heal the brokenness between us, and most of us come to understand this very quickly. Even Larry King, who television interviewer Larry King was being interviewed himself one time, and they said, Larry, if you could ask God one question, what would you ask him? He said, I would ask him, did you really have a son? Because if you did, it makes all the difference in the world. And it does. And I believe it does. So the question we ask ourselves today is, what does Jesus being the son of God make any difference in our lives? What does it mean for my everyday existence if Jesus is the Son of God? What if, is it bigger than just theology or just something I think about? There are two stories in the Gospels I want to use to help us understand this. The first one starts this way. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked them, who do people say I am? Now Jesus took a very opportune moment because the place where they were was like the Costco of religions. Every god you could possibly want was around them in Caesarea Philippi. It was in a region of the world north of Galilee known as Panion, which is named after the Greek god Pan. You know, the dude that plays the flute and looks like a goat. And Okay, Google that. Well, don't Google that because I don't know what you're going to get. But just take my word for it. It's written on a piece of paper here. It's, it, it actually happened. That's the region where they were. It was a place where there were lots of other gods. And so Jesus takes this moment and says, all right. Guys, who do people say that I am? And here's what they respond. They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. So it's kind of odd. They, they say, well, you know, people don't know what to think of you, Jesus, but when they do, they think either you're a recently dead guy who's come back to life, or you're a bunch of really old dead guys who have come back to life, or you're one of the prophets. And what they're doing is they're answering an old question with an old answer. They're saying, when God wants to get our attention, he sends a prophet. This is, this is what he does. But then Jesus turns the question around. He goes, all right, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? It's like, I don't necessarily care what they think right now, but you've been around me. You've watched me. You've been eating with me and, and, and serving with me. What do you think? Who do you say that I am? This is like when parents go, I don't care what other parents say. I care about what we say. Who do you say that I am? And this is where the rubber meets the road. And I love it because Peter is the one who pipes up and responds. He says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. If you read the Gospels, Peter is known for just opening mouth, insert foot all the time. He's constantly talking when he should be quiet, and sometimes he's quiet when he should be talking, but he's the loud man. He's like Kramer in Seinfeld. You know, that baby looks like Lyndon Johnson. He just doesn't know when to stop. But in this moment, he sounds like a poet, like a scholar. You are the Messiah. You are the son of the living God. What Peter is saying is you're everything we've been expecting. You're the thing that's going to heal the gap between God and us. You are the divine solution, the divine son. This is a new answer to the old question. You're not just a prophet. You're not just one of these old guys come back from the dead. You are the one we've all been waiting for. And this confession that Peter gives, we actually use it when we baptize people. So next weekend, when we do these mass baptisms, maybe it's time for some of you to really think through, is it time for me to make this confession? Is it time for me to decide what I really think about Jesus? Is he just some good teacher? Or is he the son of God in which there's more than I could possibly imagine? But Peter's confession is one that we use because it's a good one. It's a one about the divine problem being solved by the divine son. 
And so Jesus responds to this and he says, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Peter makes this confession. You are the Messiah and it changes everything. And this change is the same thing that you and I are longing for in our own lives. This transformation is what we're longing for in our own lives. It's what we've been looking for forever. That's why the solution that the divine son brings, the first one, is transformation. The changing of our minds and our hearts and our lives and our attitudes has to happen if the gap between us and God is ever going to be bridged. And Peter, when he confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, everything changes, but the one thing that changes very first is his name. He had been called Simon Peter or just Simon up to this point, but finally at this point, Jesus says, your name now is Peter, which means rock. And you're going to be the rock on which I build my church. You're going to be the place that starts this radical movement of transformation throughout the world. So maybe you came in today and you hate your name. Now, not the one that's on your birth certificate. That's up to you and your parents to deal with. But maybe you hate the name that you've gained over time. Failure, unlovable, addict, liar, cheat. Maybe you've come to know that that's your identity. Jesus, when you make that confession that Jesus is the Son of God, He changes. He's more than willing to change your name, just like He changed Peter's. This transformation that comes when we say, I know who it is that can lead me to the God that I've been longing for my whole life. And I know who can take care of this life that's completely out of control at this point. I need a name change. I need transformation. But am I willing to let Him do it? That's the question. Or in other words, the question is this. Who do I say He is? Reversing that question, then he asked the disciples, who do I say he is? Who do I really believe Jesus is? Do I believe he can change my name? Because if he's the Messiah, Jesus is going to show people how life was really supposed to look. He would lead them to obeying God in a way that no one else could. But not just that. He'd have to forgive their sins. If Jesus is going to overcome the gap between God and people, sin has to disappear. It's the thing that separates us. At one point in his ministry, Jesus forgives the sins of a man who couldn't walk. And the religious people just freak out about this because they believe if you're not God, you can't forgive sins. It's blasphemy to do that. And so Jesus responds to them. Jesus said, why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier to say, get up and walk, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, get up, take your mat, and go home. Jesus basically says, just so there's no questions, I'm going to do both. I'm going to heal a paralyzed guy and forgive his sins just so you know that this is reality. This is what's happening. The Son of God is in your midst. Because only the Jesus who is the Son of God heals our diseases, forgives our sins, changes our names, puts us on a different path. And this matters so much because we need to be put back right with God. Romans 5 says, By entering through faith into what God has always wanted to do for us, set us right with Him, make us fit for Him. We have it all together with God because of our Master Jesus. And that's not all. We throw open our doors to God and discover at the same moment that He has already thrown open His door to us. Because here's the reality. Jesus' whole life is spent teaching about what life is supposed to look like. 
But we already know from the rest of the story that we've read that they can't live that way. People are not capable of doing that on their own. So if Jesus just teaches about the good life and never makes it possible, that's, that's torture. That's cruel. It's like me taking my daughter to Chuck E. Cheese and never buying her any tokens. What are you really there for anyway? It's obviously not the pizza. It's cruel to say, just sit there and watch everybody else play skee-ball. This doesn't work that way. If Jesus is, no, is going to teach us about the way to live, he also has to make it possible for us to live that life. He has to change us. He has to transform our lives by dealing with our sin and opening up the door to the life that we could never possibly live on our own. And that's what he's done. The Son of God has come so that we don't have to feel guilt about what's happened in our past. We can be set right with God and we can live as if that's true. But that's not all. Because there's one more problem the Son of God had to deal with. And we hear about it in, a, in somewhat of a crazy story, so you've got to hang on with me just a little bit. Jesus is in another village. And in this other village, he hears through the grapevine that one of his friends, a man named Lazarus, has died. And Jesus is very close with this family, Lazarus and his two sisters, Mary and Martha. And so when he hears Lazarus has died, he, he waits a little bit and he goes to see what has happened. And on his way to the village, Martha comes out to see him. And Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again. This is the first thing he says to her. She sees him and tells him what's happened. He says, listen, your brother will rise again. And she says, Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. It's kind of one of those statements like, if you've ever lost someone, if you've ever gone through the loss of a loved one and someone comes to you and says, oh, but they're in a better place now. Well, first of all, that never makes any of us feel better, does it? And so she hears this, and, and she said, yes, Jesus, of course, I, I know. One day there's going to be a resurrection. Because even the Jewish people believed one day God was going to raise the, dead, raise the dead. Everything is going to happen like that. Yes, I know, one of these days it's going to happen. But that doesn't help me right now. And I kind of wonder if Jesus' smile just kind of broke into a grin. And he sort of tilted his head sideways, and he looked at her, and he said, oh, Martha. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, and even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? So he says, no, 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 you've, you've got this all wrong. I'm not saying that one day this is going to happen. I'm saying that right now, in your midst, in your presence, this thing begins right here and right now. Resurrection and life begins in me. You don't have to wait for it. It starts now. And the question he asks her, do you believe this, is another way of asking this very simple question. Who do you say I am? Am I for you, Martha, the resurrection and the life? Am I the thing that's going to give you purpose, that's going to overcome death? And I love her response. Yes, Lord, she replied, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God who is to come into the world. Who do you say I am? I believe you're the resurrection and the life. I believe you're going to do something different with death than anyone has ever done in the past. So then Jesus asks, where have you laid him? Come and see, Lord, they replied. And Jesus wept. And then the Jews said, see how he loved him. Jesus wept is one verse. It's the shortest verse in the entire Bible. If you're looking to memorize one, that's a good suggestion for you. Two words. You got it now, you got it on the way home. But just so you know, Jesus might be the divine son of God and he might be the one that's come to heal all the problems in humanity, but it doesn't mean that he is ignorant to what it feels like to experience pain and loss. 
Jesus enters into the pain of people who have lost things. And this whole thing about Jesus weeping, he knows what he's about to do, and some of you also know what he's about to do. He knows what's about to happen, and yet he still mourns with Mary and Martha. He weeps with them. Because Jesus is a God who weeps with his people. And so if you've lost something this morning, Jesus is weeping with you, even though he knows it's all going to be okay. Because here's what happened next. He says, take away the stone. Move that stone. And he says, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe you have sent me. This is kind of like the moment where Jesus says, all right, listen, it's time to plant a flag in this whole Son of God, Messiah thing. Let's just leave no doubt whatsoever that I'm the one who's sent to do these things. And when he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And then the dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped in strips of linen and a cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, take off his grave clothes and let him go. Can I just take an aside here? How freaked out was Lazarus at this point? He's like, what just happened? Like I was in a chocolate river with Elijah just five minutes ago and now I'm out here. What's going on? You see, because not only sin had to be dealt with in the divine problem, but there's one other thing that needed to be solved. Solution number two is resurrection. The greatest enemy of the human being, the greatest enemy of God's created people was death. Death came into the world because sin separated us from God. So if God is going to make everything right again, he's got to do something about death. And really, we see that in our lives because half of the really destructive stuff we get involved in is because we're trying to make ourselves forget that death is even going to happen. So Jesus, if he is the Son of God, he has to do something about death. And he does. He says, I'm the resurrection and the life. I'm going to show you that you can live without being afraid of death because death is not the end anymore. Look at the story of Lazarus. This is not the end. There is more to it. He also says, let him go at the end because in the Son of God, there's freedom from that fear of dying. Think about this. How would you live your life if you knew that death was not the end? How would you live if you knew that just after your heart stopped beating, that didn't mean the end of things? What would you invest in? What would you give your time and your energy and your money and your life to if you knew death was not the end? What would you fear? Paul says it this way in, in Romans. He says, We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Death has been defeated and when death dies, all things are new. All things are new. And so in two stories, this question has been answered, who do you say I am? And what it reveals to us is who Jesus really is. He is the Son of God. But I like what N.T. Wright has to say about this, a great scholar. He says, in Jesus himself, I suggest, we see the biblical portrait of God come to life. The loving God rolling up his sleeves to do in person the job that no one else could do. The creator God giving new life. This is who Jesus is. He's not just a good teacher. He is God in person handling the issues of creation so that we might have life and transformation because they are what we need. Because if Jesus isn't the Son of God, we don't see dead things coming back to life. If Jesus isn't the Son of God, we don't see a God who weeps with His people. We don't know a God who understands us. We don't see a God who meets us just as we are and brings life and hope to us if Jesus is not the Son of God. Because Jesus is the Son of God, we don't have to be sons and daughters of death anymore. 
There's freedom to be had. There's transformation to be had. There's resurrection to be had. So the question for us this morning is, do we want life? Do we want transformation? Do we want to see our lives as they are now changed into what God has always wanted them to be? Do we want to live as if death is not the end without the fear of the end coming for us? Do we want to live that way? Now, I know that there are some in here who don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and I understand that. It's a hard thing to wrap your brain around, God being a person and all that. I I get it. But you have to know, everybody who knew him, everybody who was around him, even the demons themselves said that he was. So we've got to entertain the question, why is it so hard for me to come to terms with that? When believing it means resurrection, when believing it means transformation, when believing it means life. Today, Jesus looks at the mess of our lives and he asks us one very critical question. Who do you say I am? Am I just a good teacher? Am I a great figure in a piece of literature that you've read once in a while and it'd be nice to live your life that way? Or am I the divine son who is the divine solution to the divine problem? Who do you say I am? Because if we keep on using human solutions to solve a divine problem, I think we know how that's going to go. In Dr. Phil language, how's that working out for us? Not so well. Romano Guardini, who's a great writer, says, if the genuine Jesus Christ were no more than the greatest of men, it would be better to hack our way alone through existence. Many of us are doing that today. We're just trying to make it on our own, and we don't have to. The Son of God came into this world so that we could have life and resurrection and transformation. Last month, I got to go to Kenya with our team, and you've probably, you've heard a lot of stories, and you've seen a lot of things about that, but one of the things I got to experience was, I got to meet a lady named Judy, who lives in the Mathari Valley, and she lives in a city that looks something like this, just shanty towns, and, and just little huts on top of little huts on top of little huts, people living within close proximity to each other. And she probably lived on a street that looks like this, that's just littered with garbage and, and kids playing in trash. And there's, there's all that brutal stuff that you see in the commercials. And she likely had a little store next door to her house that looks kind of like this, where she'd get the supplies that she had. She and her four kids and her husband lived in an eight by five corrugated tin house with one bed and a very small couch. Her oldest child was old enough to go to school. Her youngest was four months. Her name was Angel. And Judy and Angel were in their home when we went to see them. So we walked in and we had a a person from the village there who was translating for us. And we talked to her a little bit. And then we said, can we pray for you, Judy? And she said, yeah, absolutely. And so we all gathered around her and and we put our hands on her. And they looked at me and they said, Pastor, would you like to pray? And I'm like, well, I guess it kind of comes with the title. Um, So we... (laughs) So we put our hands on her and we said, what, what can we pray for you for? And I'm standing in the middle of all this and I'm, I'm seeing this house that you know, barely has enough electricity to run one light bulb and when it goes dark at night, it is dark at night. And I'm seeing her with this little girl and I'm wondering what the hope for her in the world is and, and I'm thinking that Judy's going to have these big blow out the doors kind of prayers for the whole life change and to move her out of this place and everything like that. And it was stunning to me that she said, well, I, I, I want to pray for food and for clothing, and for just enough for us to get by. And I thought to myself, what am I missing here? She's in the middle of this situation. Why why doesn't she pray for God to just pull her right out of it? And then I thought, oh, Casey, she knows Jesus is the Son of God. So wherever she is, she's free. There's life there. There's resurrection there. There's transformation there. Because if Jesus is the Son of God, wherever we are, He is. 
And He can bring us through. No matter what we're in our, our suffering or in our poverty or in our trials or struggles, Jesus, the Son of God, is there bringing life and hope and transformation. The question for Judy and the question for us is, do we believe it? Do we really believe that He's the Son of God? Do we believe that He is the divine solution to the divine problem, this divine Son? Or, in Jesus' words, the question you and I need to ask and answer at some point, at some point in our lives is this. Who do you say I am? We come to time for communion. Um, It's amazing to think of Jesus is the Son of God. My, my wife and I, Friday night, we got to go to a, a two-man play called Fish Eyes. Strange name, but um, I, I'd never seen it before. It's a, it's a story about Peter and Andrew, two of Jesus' disciples, and their story of how they come to know Jesus and all the adventures they go through with Him. And, and there's this one part in the play that's very powerful where uh, they come to this room and they prepared this room for a feast with Jesus. It turns out being the, the Passover meal, what's called the Last Supper in the famous painting. And, and they kind of make some jokes about that. But um, they come and they sit down and Jesus looks at them and he says, I'm going to wash your feet. And back in the, I don't know if you know anything about Hebrew first century feet, but they're as nasty as it sounds. And uh, actually not as nasty as, probably just as nasty as feet today, but they used to walk around, and when they traveled, they traveled in sandals, and so they would just accumulate mud and, and gunk and other assorted stuff on their way. And so whenever they sat down to eat a formal meal, they would have like a servant, like a low-class slave, come and wash their feet and get all that dirt and caked-on junk off before they sat down to eat. And Jesus looks at them and he says, I'm going to wash your feet. And so that's if Jesus is just a good teacher or a humanitarian or a great leader or just a great man, that's one thing. But if this is the Son of God bending down with a bowl of water and a towel to scrub our dirty, dirty feet, well, that's something else. And some of us have this stuff that's caked onto our lives. It's been there for a long time. Maybe it's guilt, maybe it's fear, maybe it's sin, maybe it's something that we've broken and it doesn't seem like it's ever going to be fixed. And Jesus this morning says, I am the Son of God. I'm, I'm coming to bring God's solution for the world, but, but I'm going to wash your feet. I'm going to kneel down and scrub that caked on death and hate and unforgiveness and bitterness off your feet so that you can be clean. It is the act of a servant. It was an act that was humiliating, just like the cross. To be executed like a criminal on the outside of the city, to be publicly humiliated, Jesus said, I'm going to do this because this is what you need to solve the problem between you and God. And so as we celebrate communion, we're celebrating the Son of God who washed his dirty feet, the Son of God who submits himself to a cross to die so that we might live the best life we could possibly imagine and lose all fear of death at the end. So as these elements come, as you take them, as you take the juice and the bread, remember that. This is not a God who is distant, but a God who weeps with us, a God who cleans dirty feet, and a God who dies on a real cross in a real hill in a real world for you and I. When the trays go across, there are two cups. Take both of them out. Hold them all. Take communion together. You don't have to be a part of Parkview to take communion with us. If you believe in Jesus, we welcome you to take this with us today. Let's pray. Jesus, 
It's so good to know that even though you're the Son of God, you still know what it means to be us. To struggle with what we struggle with. You know the feeling of loss. You know the feeling of death and of pain. And you've overcome it. And because you overcame it, we can overcome it as well. And so help us to trust you with that today. And as we take these elements into our body, may they start a grand and beautiful work of transforming us and resurrecting our lives from dead places. And all these things we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.